Frank, good evening, everyone. Um, it's, so, it's so lucky to hear Amy and Ivan just lead us in worship, isn't it? I, I really feel so blessed every time. And I always think that, you know, if or when they have kids, those kids do not actually have a chance, do they? Like, they're going to be like that fun trap family in Sound of Music. And I'm looking forward to it. So, so yeah. Uh, happy Father's Day. When, when Anna just reminded us about Father's Day, and I helped myself to two or maybe even three pieces of carrot cake uh, as a reward, I, <laughs> this morning I woke up and my, my, my kids brought me stuff, and Lorraine is, 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 is very excited. And then I'm, I'm just reminded of two things. The one is, oh man, I, I probably forgot Mother's Day. Um, I think it has already happened. And. And the second thing that always happens is I remember my dad's relationship to these things because he would drop me off at school, but then I was like in pre-primary school, and, uh, and I, would, I would say, um, Dad, I need five rand for this thing that we are building for Father's Day. And then he didn't have five rand on him, and then he would just always say, oh, just, tell, uh, just tell the teachers that that's just a Jewish way of making money. Um, and then... <laughs> I wouldn't know what a Jew is, so I would just go, and then the teacher says, Juan, did you bring... No, my dad says it's just a Jewish way of making money. And then, <laughs> I mean, they would be hysterical, and I wouldn't have a clue what we're talking about in, in any case. So you guys should know by now that we are busy with the, the first of the, the letters to the Corinthians. And what, what happened is... There were, there were a few questions that the Corinthian church asked Paul. So there is the letter to Paul. We don't have it anymore, but we can assume there's the letter to Paul, that the Corinthians wrote to Paul. And we can also try and figure out what were the questions in that letter that the Corinthians wrote to, to Paul. So question... Number one would have been something along the lines of, is it okay for, married, for a married couple not to have sex? In other words, can a married couple be so spiritual that they just stop having, you know, d- d- committing the dirty deed altogether? Secondly, what about widowers and widows? What are we supposed to do with them? Because with this Christian revolution, everything is changing uh, and you can't use the Jewish wisdom because the Christians are, are building on that, but also moving in a different direction. You can't, move, you can't build on the pagan wisdom. So how do we do this thing? That is the, uh, that is the question. So how do, how, what's the Christian way of, of dealing with, with widowers and widows? What about divorce? How should we make sense of that? What should believers do who are married to unbelievers? How should we navigate those waters? What about single people? How, how do Christians feel about single people? Can we remarry after a spouse has died? And, uh, and then, can we eat food offered to idols? Now, the reason why we know that there was a letter that the Corinthians wrote to Paul is because Paul starts 1 Corinthians 7 with, Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, and now he's starting to answer those questions. But here's the joke. These questions are very pious, are they not? 
is it okay for us to, to be so spiritual that we deny each other sex? Is that okay? Um, how should we as Christians deal with these pagan, unbelieving uh, uh, spouses of ours? How, how should we navigate those things? And then what does Paul start with? Let me tell you what they did not write about. They did not write about, uh, by the way, we are, uh, the church is breaking up pretty much along ethnic lines, and the Apollos faction hates the Peter faction, hates the Paul faction. Oh, by the way, there's one guy with a lot of money, and he's having incest. He's practicing incest. He's, uh, um, he's getting it on with his stepmother. Oh, and by the way, a lot of the other guys are just having casual sex with prostitutes. But uh, tell us about these other things as well. What, what, is your, what are your views on divorce, etc.? They left out all those other questions, and Paul is calling their bluff and saying, ah, oh, guys, I, I'm, I'm not, we, can, we can deal with these pious questions of yours later. And for the first six chapters, he just doubles down on all the nonsense that is happening in the Corinthian church, ignoring the questions that they asked him about because he spoke to other people from the Corinthian church. All right, so, so this facade in terms of the questions that they were wrestling with, uh, call, uh, Paul just called their bluff. And uh, for the first ch- six chapters, he, he just went, went, went on. Now, in the seventh chapter, however, there's a bit of a shift. And uh, that's why we're going to read the first 16 verses in 1 Corinthians 7 from uh, verses 1 to 16. I think there are Bibles at the back, or you can just follow on your phone or just pay attention. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote... It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. Now, that is just a fancy way of saying the the wife must practice her marital duties as well as the husband must practice his marital duties. This is just a um, polite way of saying that you must give him or her sex. And likewise, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement, for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. As a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as myself. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, she, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children will be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such a case, brothers or sisters are not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Okay. 
so many hot potatoes in 16 verses. Now, I think Paul contradicts our contemporary society in at least five ways in just 16 verses. That's pretty impressive. I mean, you are almost trying to be contrarian. If you can contradict all our contemporary wisdom on all these particular issues um, in just 16 verses. So I want to look at five lies that I think our society tells us today and how Paul thinks about it and, by default, what is the biblical view. The first lie is, it's my body, I can do what I want. Have you guys heard that? We've heard it in different contexts. We've heard it in the abortion debate. But there's also... Uh, a version of that that I've got a little bit more sympathy for, and that is the, uh, there's a lot of abuse and a lot of gender abuse. And it's important for, for men, but especially women, to have you know, a sense of ownership and know that it's their body and they need to be responsible and it doesn't belong to all of these other sexual predators. In that context, it is fine. But most of the time, it has a very individualistic selfish uh, motivation behind it. And Paul says, no. There were two prominent sexual problems that Paul faced in the Corinthian church. The one was promiscuity. That was the everything goes policy that the Corinthians had. We spoke about this last week, but if you lived in Corinth, you were promiscuous. You didn't have, they, in, in the ancient Roman world, they didn't say you are fornicating. They said you are Corinthianizing. So, so that means you are sleeping around. So this city had a very bad reputation. Uh, you had the, the temple of Aphrodite uh, at the top, and, uh, and, and there were about 1,000 temple prostitutes, and every now and then they would just come into the city and service various uh, people. So it, it, it was an absolute mess. So a lot of promiscuity. Paul struggled with that. But there was now another faction, and this usually happens when people are converted from, let's say, a very promiscuous and rough background, and that is they become super legalistic. Sex is bad. It's the flesh. It's the body. It is anti-spiritual. And this is called asceticism, all right? That's just a fancy word of saying the body and sex is bad. We need to focus on spiritual things. So now this church is writing... Paul, I, am, I, I, I know that you don't want us to divorce, but is it okay if we just cut sex out of our marriage completely in an attempt to be super spiritual? And Paul is saying, hmm, it's a little bit too late for celibacy if you are, if you are married. And there is nothing holy about not giving each other sex. So don't think that you are glorifying God in, in any way. I remember being in a wedding where Christopher Beer, some of you guys know Christopher Beer, he, uh, uh, he comes mostly in the morning, but uh, he, he did a toast, I think on the groom or something. And then at one point, he just raised his glass and he said, what was yesterday a sin is tonight your God-given duty, um, referring to sex, all right? And what, 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 Chris, I mean, it was very inappropriate. We found it very amusing. Maybe the, the, the parents of the bride did not find it that amusing. But, but Paul doubles down on this, and he says, your body does not belong to you. It belongs to your wife. Wives, your body do not belong to you. It belongs 
to your husband. So he even takes it to the next level. And this is very cringe for us in the modern world. Oh, to say that your body belongs to your husband. That sounds very patriarchal. That sounds very bad. At least there's the next section that says, um, men, your body do not belong to, to yourselves. It belongs to your wife. But it flies in the face of our individualistic culture. Can you guys see how this is a little bit cringe from where we, from where we stand? But the language and the implications of, of this command, of this phrase, I think are beautiful. So first of all, in the ancient world, people would have understood if you said the woman do not, does not have authority over her own body. That was accepted. That was uh, common knowledge back then. But then to say that the men do not have authority over their bodies would have been absurd in the ancient world. They, they, there was no way in which any person could make sense of it. As a matter of fact, it was a well-known fact, and there's a lot of archaeological evidence for it to suggest that it was, it was problematic for women to be promiscuous, but it was perfectly acceptable for men to be promiscuous. And to this day, that still survives, right? If a man is promiscuous, he's kind of a stud. If it's a girl, she's a slut, all right? So, uh, so th this is... This is uh, to this day, we, we recognize something of this. And the fact that women are included in this, in this language of your husband's body belongs to you, that would have been very liberating to a first century woman living in the Greco-Roman world, I can assure you. Today, many people read Paul and say, ah, oh, he's so anti-woman, this is, this is what's wrong with the church, it's so patriarchal, blah, 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 blah. That just shows that you know nothing about the first century world. Paul was incredibly pro-woman when he states uh, things like this. As a matter of fact, many commentators suggest that in, in Acts 17 and other places you read about rich Greek women following Paul, supporting Paul. And they suggest the reason why you had rich Greek, formerly pagan women backing Paul is because this was a very liberating message that Paul was preaching. As a matter of fact, we know that the early church were full of women, mostly women, so much so that the Roman uh, and pagan apologists who, who tried to discredit the church said, that's just the religion of women and children. Can anybody take it seriously? Why did this message attract so many women? Because it was liberating. That's the first one. The second implication is this. Paul is saying, sex is not something you get, it is something you give. Sex is not something you get, it is something you give. And that, by the way, is why, and I just partly why, something like porn is so problematic. Because it is directly just designed to satisfy me to satisfy my desires. And that is missing the point of biblical sex completely. It is really about the other person. And if both of these partners, and this is not just true physically, by the way, this is true emotionally in, in, in the whole of the relationship. If, 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 if you enter marriage and you say, oh, I mean, I remember we did this in high school. You had to describe in an oral, describe the perfect wife, describe the perfect husband. And then we would list... So I want a wife, um, I, I'll take anything between 165 and 17 in terms of length. Um, she must be really good looking, nice body, nice personality. Uh, I prefer that, that color eye. Um, she must be really smart and I, I really want this, I want this, I want this. Can you see that consumerist 
relationship um, that we had with what we want in a spouse, the biblical understanding is uh, that that is irrelevant. As a matter of fact, looking back, I think um, what we should have said is you realize that if you want to get the spouse that you are describing, then they would definitely have to compromise on their list if they pick you. But, uh, but th that's, just a, that's just a side point. Um, the fact of the matter is this is how we relate to, to other people in this consumerist uh, way. Paul says, no, it's all about giving. It's not about taking. It's all about giving. It's not about consuming. So your body does not belong to you. It belongs to the other person. And sorry if I'm getting a little bit gory and into the details. My, my wife said, geez, you guys are really just talking about sex all the time at, at dialogue at the moment. I said, it's not me, it's Paul. He's really just going, going through the book. Blame, blame him. And uh, that means that sometimes there, there can be something in a relationship, in a married relationship, called uh, submissive sex, where you really don't feel like it, but the other person is, you, you can see that the other person wants it, and even though you are not there, you're going to give your body as a gift to that person. That's really, really difficult, friends, but that is, that, those are the implications. All right, the second lie is this one. The family is the most important thing in Christian life. Have you guys heard that? The family is the most important thing in Christian life. There's this big ministry, one of the biggest Christian ministries in the world in America called Focus on the Family, uh, James Dobson. And I'm sure there are a lot of good things in, uh, that, 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 that he says in, in his Focus on the Family. And I hear this language all the time of, you know, the, the problem with the modern movements is that they are attacking the family. And I... And I get that. I'm also concerned about a lot of the identity politics movements that's attacking the family, the nuclear family, etc., etc. But the traditional societies generally idolize the family. And Christianity very much came against that, the idolatry of, of family. When Jesus says, I, I came to separate mother and father, brother, and sister. It means that there's a new loyalty that is more important than, than family loyalty. It puts it in perspective. And likewise, I think this conservative lie, I want to almost say this Christian lie of the most important thing in the Christian life is, is the family. Why it can be so damaging is because there are a lot of single Christians who've been made to feel as second-class citizens in the church. And you guys have all experienced this, maybe when you were single, maybe you're experiencing it still, but, ah, oh, so, so where's the significant other? No, 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 there's no significant other. Ah, oh, okay. And then it might be one awkward, the conversation would be, ah. Oh, um, or if you are so as untactful as I am, you would just say, so what's wrong with you? Um, and the assumption is almost that if you're single, it's a curse. What's, what's the matter with you? But just noted, note, notice in this passage, Paul does not see singleness as a curse. He sees it as a gift. Um, where is it? Is it in, in, in verse 6? He says, <clears throat> I wish that all of you were as myself, but each has his own gift from God. He's, he even thinks that singleness 
is to be preferred, but it's not, it's not for everybody. So can you, can you see that it is possible that in the church today, we might, might have gone off on the other side where we idolize family to the detriment of the single person and to the detriment of, I think, Paul and Jesus' uh, teaching. So that is, that's another lie. And this was also true in the ancient world where singleness was very much frowned upon. If you were a widow or a widower, you had to remarry very quickly. But notice Paul's advice in this. He says, eh, I think it's okay if you don't marry again. Why? Because then you've got a lot of energy that you can plow into the kingdom. Friends, I, I'm sorry if I play this dad card too much, but it's Father's Day, so I can do what I want. But um, I really think back and ask myself, what on earth did I do with my time when I was single, when I didn't have kids? What what did I do? How did I not change the world and have five PhDs and invent something cool or, or, or whatever? There's definitely a lot of freedom that you can capitalize on when, when you are single. And the irony is that all the married people are looking back at the single people and saying, oh man, I wish I could be single again. And all the single people are, oh, I wish I could be married. And nobody's doing anything. And <laughs> maybe that's, that's, part of the, that's part of the problem. So in the ancient world, it was, it was so unacceptable in the Greco-Roman world that they would tax you uh, if you were not married. You had singleness tax. <laughs> they really wanted you to, to, be, to be married. And Paul is saying, I wish that all of you can be like me, single, but not everybody is strong enough. Now listen, uh, because singleness is so important, and it's so important to Paul, and we, we need to spend a lot of time on it, uh, Gior is going to talk about it next week. Uh, one, he's been single for a long time. He can speak from authority. And also, that is just the next, the next section um, in, uh, in, the, in the letter. All right, so I don't want to belabor that, that point. What I can tell you is that maybe if you're secular and you think, oh, man, I like this poor guy. Singleness, oh, man, marriage is such an institution. It's just there to enslave you. It comes with a catch, though, and that is uh, celibate singleness. All right. So it's not just singleness. Ah, oh, don't be attached to any woman. It is celibate singleness. So that is a bit of a deal breaker to, to most uh, moderns, I, I guess. But, uh, but Paul certainly thinks that singleness is, is great. Can I do a little detour for a second? This is just a commercial break. But uh, there's this, and, and this, is a, this is a Protestant joke, but uh, this this priest is is running to the monastery where all these priests are are, are sitting, and they can just hear in the distance. It's an ah, it's an ah. Like, what what is he saying? And they just listen. There's an ah, there's an ah, and so what? There's an ah, there's an ah, and it's like, what do you mean? It is celebrate, not celebrate. Um, come on, people. <laughs> Anyways, all right, but please don't write that down. Okay, line number three, line number three. First, see if you are sexually compatible. Just move in together and see if it works. Now, friends, this wisdom is so commonplace, or what, what I would call a lie, is so commonplace today that I received it from within the church as, as a young man in a committed relationship with my varsity darling and trying to make sense, ah. Oh, really not sure about marriage yet, but we've been, doing, we've, we've been uh, together now for two, going on three years, so how does that do? 
you guys can, can just have sex and maybe just try and you know, see if that works, see if there's some sort of compatibility, and then, then take, it, take it from there. Now, last week, we spoke a lot about promiscuous sex, as in hookup culture. And I think, by and large, most people are not on board with that. They can see the dangers. Even secular people are starting to see the dangers in that. But people will typically say, but if you're in a committed relationship, it's fine. It's fine. First of all, first of all let me just say this. I've got a lot of sympathy for that view. A lot of sympathy. Because in the first century, people got married when they were 15. If you were 15, people were like, oh, time is running out. You need to get that, that, that person. Will you do a talk on singleness for us? Um, that's, that's what happened back then if you were 15. Now, we're getting marri- married at 30, and for probably your sexually most active time in your life biologically, you are celibate. That is really difficult. And I've been trying to find loopholes and justification for this in the Bible, but I'm, I still haven't found it, guys. I'm sorry. Uh, and I, I think, I think, even though the Bible does not make that concession, it doesn't say, oh, but one day if you guys get married later and that's just a cultural thing, then, I mean, just, just have fun. Um, you know, uh, Paul 2 verse 5. But, but maybe... We can trust Paul when he says that, that sex belongs in marriage. And, and even though I find it difficult, even though I find this difficult, I find it difficult to advise people on this, there are a few things that we, that we just know. One is that if you're in a relationship and there are lots of red flags in that, relationships, in that relationship and you have been sexually active, then it will be very difficult for you to think soberly about that relationship. It will be very difficult for you to say, oh, yeah, no, there are some serious character issues there and, and maybe we should end this. If there has been sex, I can assure you it will immediately complicate things that you will not be able to think soberly about the, the relationship. And a lot of relationships are going on way too long because, of sexual, uh, because it was sexual. That's the first bit. The second one is just in the stats and to, to my surprise, what we know about people who cohabit before and people who are sexually active, their marriages are more prone to end in divorce than those who do not. So usually, now I'm not saying it's a death sentence. I'm not saying if you guys uh, slept together or if you moved in together and if you're watching online, please do not feel any of, of that condemnation. I'm not saying that, that, that your relationship is doomed. I'm just saying that the contemporary wisdom would say, so that you do not divorce, just make sure that you move in together and see if you're compatible. But the statistic shows the opposite. It doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. Now, I, I can't tell you exactly how it works. I can't int- tell you exactly all the details why I think God wants this perfectly in marriage. And I think we need to plead... A lot of, we need to be obedient, but we can also just ask a lot of questions and say we we, we can't understand everything about this. But one thing that I've I've noticed is that typically we would tell people, you know, just wait a little bit. Just, just, Just wait. Now Paul says, if you burn with passion, get married. And we would say, if you burn with passion, go take a cold shower. Uh, 
and, and, and I think there's a place for that advice. But, but I also think that I, I, I know the prejudice that I had against my friends who got married in their third year at varsity, 20, 21. And you know what? We always just say, oh, the only reason that those guys are getting married is so they can have sex. Let's be honest with each other. And, and I really thought that. But the problem is uh, they are still having sex with each other. And this is 10 years, 15 years on. Now, when, when Anna and Gira and I were, were discussing this, we said, if you take sex serious enough not to have it outside of marriage, then chances are you will take marriage serious enough not to have a divorce. Right? So all those relationships that I judged as, a, uh, you know, as, as these guys are, are practically teenagers, they're not supposed to go in this direction, all those relationships are still standing. They're still doing well. Now, I'm not saying, like, it's, it's very difficult to think of my, my toddlers at the moment in, in any romantic, you know, sense of, of the word. You know, at, at this point, they're choking on Lego, so it's hard to think having this discussion with them one day. But, uh, but I, I'm not going to be thrilled if they, if they think that in, in grade 11 or grade 12 and have these discussions. Dad, um, you more said that Paul spoke about if you burn with passion, you get, get married. Can we just make a plan? And then, I'm, I mean, I'm definitely not going to agree with their exegesis. But, but what... What I do know is that, that we've, we've got this, just wait, just wait, just wait. And it's almost a, 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 a generic answer. And it's not necessarily always the best advice. Another problem that we have in our culture is that we are so obsessed with the perfect wedding and the perfect dress that we are engaged forever, for years, just so that we can make sure that we've got the, the perfect wedding and everything must be in, in, in place. I've shared this too many times, but, but I don't care. Uh, Marcus, who usually leads us in worship, him and Chanae, I met them, they came to church, and uh, he started to show interest in Christianity. He asked me, can, I, can you baptize me? And I asked him a few questions, and then I realized him and Chanae were living together. And I thought, oh, man, can't I just slip this? Uh, I, I didn't have to talk about this. And then I thought, oh, well, this guy is, in any case, he's going to leave us now. But uh, it, it was nice knowing him. So I said, look, this is, not, this is not God's ideal that you guys are living together. And you, you either need to uh, move out or you need to marry each other or you guys need to fast track this and move in a direction. But it cannot stay the same. And Marcus's response was, so uh, when can you marry us? And, and I said, I think you need to ask Shanae first. That's, that's usually uh, the, the order of these things. And, uh, and I think two weeks from that discussion, they got married. And it was in a church there, somewhere in the Muet. And their family, and I'm, I'm sorry, Marcus, if you're watching, if I'm sharing too much here, but they, their family are not necessarily spiritual in, in any sense of the word. And they couldn't understand why on earth they their uh, nephews and kids are, are doing something as stupid as, as this. This is just so, not, it doesn't make any sense. And they were there at this wedding <laughs> trying to, like, everybody was walking around with massive frowns. And, and I don't know how much that wedding cost, but it was really not a lot. I think there was a cake. I'm not even sure. Uh, Shanae wore a dress. I think it was white. Uh, but it was basic. It was very, very basic. 
And I remember crying from the beginning to the end. And to this day, I've been to a lot of weddings. I, as a matter of fact, I went to my own. And I can tell you that to this day, that remained the most beautiful wedding I've ever attended. It was just so sincere. It was just, uh, for a moment, I just saw all the, all the fluff that is part of our weddings that we have today, including my own. So please don't feel any judgment if, uh, if that is your plan or if that already happened for you. But I am saying that these two-year engagement, just to have the perfect wedding, I've only been to one perfect wedding, and I think it cost 2,000 bucks. Yeah. So, so that's, that's, that's the other lie, the, the, the lie that, um, that you need to get... Uh, that, that you need to get married, um, and you, you, before you get married, you need to just check each other out. That is, that is nonsense. Now, the fourth lie is, if marriage isn't working for you, then just get out. If, if this isn't working for you, then just, then just go somewhere else. Again, I'm sorry for saying this the whole time, this was very radical in the ancient world. Divorce was prominent. It was prominent in the Jewish culture. It was prominent in the pagan culture. And then Jesus says, I can, yeah, you can divorce, but then you're not allowed to get remarried. And when the disciples heard this teaching, what's their response? Well, then it's better not to get married, I guess. <laughs> I mean, if, if you're telling us we're not able to get divorced, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not in for that. So this was, this was absurd in, in, in the ancient world. And Jesus takes a very harsh stance there. And when Paul talks about it, he says, do not get divorced. And this is not me speaking. This is the Lord. We've got a teaching of his. We know that this is what he said. Now, friends, when it comes to divorce, this is a, a tricky topic. And we've spoken about it. I'm sure it's on our podcast list. You can go and find it or you can talk to me afterwards. I don't want to be legalistic here. I don't want to hurt um, anyone because I know that there are a lot of divorcees, part of our wider community. Um, but let me just say this, whatever divorce is, it's definitely not as casual as our world sees it today. It's, it's not even close to this contemporary view. I, uh, my, my friend Rudolf, who, who co-founded Dialogue, as a matter of fact, he was a pastor in Ruedepoort, and, and he, he married this couple, and then he just got a phone call a couple of days later, and the guy asked him, have you already filed our papers, our marriage papers? And he said, no, no, no. And he says, okay, please don't, because this is not working out. And, and Rudolf is a nice guy. I haven't heard him swear ever. And he says, and forgive me for saying this, but he said, F you. That's what, that was his response. He says, do you think that I am a little pastor for hire? that you can do for your little social gatherings? Do you have any idea what we did last week, Saturday? Are you a child to think that after a fight you can just throw this thing under the bus? I, do never, I never want to hear anything like this again. Um, it's pathetic and you're stupid and you threw the phone. Now, a lovely pastoral discussion, in other words. And to this day, when he goes back to his church, the church he planted, He's met by this family of three kids and this loving family, always thanking him for treating them like a child uh, uh, four days after they got married. And they always thank him. Thank you. That, that saved our lives. We are so happy 
and we just needed someone to tell us that this is serious. Don't mess around with it. If you stick around, then chances are that, uh, that you will grow into this. That's why when we think of divorce, we shouldn't see it as separation. That's how we speak about it. It's such a soft word, such a euphemism, isn't it? Uh, no, we, we, we've separated now. Um, that's not how Paul sees it. That's not how Jesus sees it. They would say it's not separation, it's amputation. That's what divorce is. And sometimes divorce is necessary. But sometimes amputation is necessary. But I can assure you, if you... If, if, if a doctor, Krishna is a doctor, if she tells you that, if she tells me that I need to amputate my arm, Krishna, I, I trust your medical capabilities, but I'm going to get a second opinion, I promise you. I'm going to get a third opinion. I'm going to really make sure, is the, are you sure? Are you 100% sure that's the only thing that's going to save my life? And then amputation is, is, uh, is perhaps the only option. But amputation is not something that we take lightly. And, and people are just amputating uh, relationships like that in this, in this country and in this world. And it is very far removed from the biblical principles. All right. Again, if you feel judged by what I said there, there's a lot of grace there. There's a lot of complexity there. We can talk about it. But whatever it is, it's, marriage is not trivial. And then line number five is, I'm too holy for you now. You must please go and not contaminate me. And you might ask me, where on earth did Paul uh, respond to that lie? Well, there's the question of, should we stay married to our pagan husbands and wives? Now, paganism, even, to, even today, paganism is making a bit of a comeback. And you've got these, these, these people who are you know, into, into that now. And if you go into exclusive books, there's, there's almost something, ooh, if you're really trippy and hippie, then you go into your paganism. And these guys really want onto something. But paganism was dodgy, proper dodgy, borderline occultic. All right, back then, there was a, there's a very strong shadowy dimension to paganism that, that we do not recognize when we just think about these guys. Oh, they were pagans, now they're Christians. No, there was something very dark about that pagan world. So if you were married to somebody who is very committed to the cult of Aphrodite or to Mithras or one of these pagan deities, and what, what comes along with it are very... Again, dodgy sacrifices, temple prostitution, etc. If you are married to a man who's practicing that, then divorce seems like a reasonable thing to ask, right? And Paul says, if they want to stay with you, don't separate. And then they might ask, but what if they contaminate us? What if they bring that, that pagan spirit into our home? And Paul is saying, you must contaminate them. They should not contaminate you. Did you guys read that section where it says, and you will save the husband, and you will save the wife, and the children will be made clean by you? It sounds almost as if your wife is a Christian, and you are a heathen, then you get a free pass to heaven just because your wife, she prayed a lot So when you're at the pearly gates. But that's not what's going on. What Paul is saying is that through a believing husband, the wife has a good chance of being saved as well. Your kids have a really good chance of being saved. So, so don't separate if these people, 
that, that, that you are currently committed to if they do not want to separate. If they want to separate, then, then you are not obliged, and, and one can understand that. But if they do not want to separate, then don't. Contaminate them. Jesus, Jesus was the holiest person that ever walked the earth. And he surrounded himself with a lot of unholiness. He surrounded himself with lepers, with tax collectors, with women with chronic menstruation, everything that was notoriously unclean to the Jewish mind. And he touched them. And instead of him becoming unclean, these people became clean. That's what happened. And Paul is asking us to see our calling in our, in, in, in our lives like that. Don't become contaminated by them. No, 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 no. In the spirit of Jesus and his life and his ministry and the power of his spirit, go and change them. Don't be changed by them. The beauty of this, friends, is that when Jesus touches us, we are made clean. He is not made dirty. And that is very good news, especially on a topic like this. Because... A lot of us have fallen short of the mark when it comes to this, this demand that Jesus and Paul is holding up in terms of the sexual. Maybe, maybe you haven't committed adultery. Maybe you haven't practiced premarital sex. But friends, uh, there are no innocent people in front of me and definitely not behind the pulpit. There are all sorts of addictions then you've got the problematic statement where Jesus says, if you have even looked at someone else and lusted, then you've already committed adultery. So, so everybody here and everybody everywhere are in desperate need of grace when it comes to this topic. And that is why it's so good news that as soon as Jesus enters this brokenness of ours, what happens is we become clean. It's not the other way around. That's good news. Sadly, many Christians use these verses and they walk around a little bit with a hammer and they hurt a lot of people with living in sin, sin, it's sin what you're doing. And very few people are moved by that, right? Very few people uh, respond to that kind of, kind of language. I think the Bible assumes, first of all, that there's this mutual brokenness that exists in us. And we are all in desperate need of grace. And I said this last week, and I'll say it again. Chesterton spoke about, he just got this famous quote where he says, the Christian ideal hasn't been found, tried and found wanting, it's been found difficult and left untried. Christianity is difficult. It's really difficult. The... Uh, the the sex ethic, not even to talk about generosity and all the other things that he calls us to. It's really difficult. But the only thing that's more difficult than the standards of this new movement that Jesus started and that we are called to as his apprentices, the only thing higher than the standard is what? His grace. But the one doesn't undermine the other. We are still called to this, 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 this high ethic but at the same time, we cannot be overwhelmed by it because we are meeting grace on the other side. 
And that gives us the power when we slip up to try again, to start over. And there's this wonderful line in what is officially the best band uh, ever, Mumford & Sons, in uh, a song called Roll Away Your Stone. And I just love it. He just says, it's not the long walk home that will change this heart. It's the grace that I receive at the restart. In other words, it's not your own efforts. It's if you've messed up, that's fine. It's the grace that you receive when there's the arms of a loving father just welcoming you back and say, let's try again. Let's do this again. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of your glory. And as we reflect on this letter that your servant Paul wrote so many years ago to the church in Corinth, we are reminded of, of our own inability to, to live up to the high, high standards that you've called us to. Lord, I pray that it will not overwhelm us but rather that we will be invigorated by the knowledge that your grace is much bigger than our sin. Lord Jesus, there are many here that might feel convicted. There are many here that might feel very resistant to this message. I pray that you will meet us where we are at, Lord, that you will work in our hearts, irrespective of how we receive this message this, this evening. Nonetheless, Lord, we... We pray that we will be able to persevere. Those of us who are married, this is very challenging. Those of us who are single, it is very challenging. Those of us who are thinking of getting out of a marriage or who are already divorced, it is really challenging. Those of us who are struggling with people around us who we feel are uh, contaminating us a little bit and are toxic, this is very challenging, Lord. Help us to be challenged by this. May it really infiltrate our hearts, God. May we wrestle with these questions and not be overwhelmed by them. Lord Jesus, I pray that in community that we can try and hold each other accountable, that we can try and make sense of this life that you call us to together. Thank you for the, for the camp, the, not the camp, the, the, the seminar that's coming up that, that, that Anna is, is organizing about uh, relationships. And you know, Lord, we so desperately also want the world to look in and say, that is, uh, that is, worth, that is a way worth living. And that through our relationships, people will see, oh, wow, there's really something to it. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for everything. But above all, we thank you for your grace. And it is in your name that we pray. Amen.